When is an allergy not an allergy? Especially when we're talking about food. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Dean Metcalf. Dr. Metcalf is the Chief of the Laboratory of Allergic Diseases at the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. He is past chairman of the American Board of Allergy and Immunology and past president of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Today we are discussing masqueraders of food allergy. Welcome, Dr. Metcalf, and thanks for taking the time to join us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Reactions to food can be immunologic and non-immunologic. Are the clinical symptoms similar, or are there a unique pattern of symptoms that might push somebody to consider a non-immunologic reaction? Certainly, when we're talking about reactions that can be confused with, with food allergies or allergic reaction to foods, we're thinking of any, any kind of food that, for some other reason, can result in something perceived by the patient that the patient might say, hey, I think I have a food allergy. One very good example of this is lactose intolerance or lactase deficiency. I mean, patients will come in and say, look, I think I have a food allergy because I eat this food or that food, and I get a lot of gastrointestinal cramping and flatulence and things like that. And although I think all of us are are used to thinking about lactose intolerance, and it's a very common condition, it's surprising how often in the context of the patient's perception of the problems being evaluated by a physician that it's not thought of, or if it is thought of, it's discarded because there's no appreciation really of how much milk or milk products can be in some of the things that the patients are associating with their reaction. Do you have to do a lactose tolerance test? It sounds like from what you're saying, an elimination diet just isn't going to work. It's an interesting question. It depends upon how severe it is because it really depends upon the level of these enzymes that are present in the person's gut wall. So many times patients will have just found out that if they drink a glass of milk, they always feel terrible, and that's a challenge test. Other patients have a more subtle problem, and sometimes it does require working out you know, in the doctor's office to take a challenge test and to see Uh, if the person can handle lactose. I'm a practicing pediatrician, and one of the issues for us is the child with a diarrheal disease and the issue of transient lactase deficiency. Originally, everybody believed in it. Then they said, don't withhold lactose. Where do you stand in that issue? I think what you're talking about is the transient deficiencies that are said to be associated with gastrointestinal viruses usually. There's certainly some basis to think that that happens. It shouldn't last very long. But as most people know, you know, as you, as you go into adulthood, these enzymes are synthesized less, and people who had no problems for a long time suddenly start to develop problems, and it's very common in some groups of uh, individuals. Another big issue is the toxic reactions to foods that can come from bacterial contamination as well as pharmacological vasoactive amines that may be in foods. Are there any particular ones that physicians need to be aware of? The most striking of these types of reactions is something called scombroid fish poisoning. This is a condition where whatever seafood you're talking about is not refrigerated correctly on the way to market or maybe at home, and bacteria are able to make large amounts of histamine out of histidine that's within the muscle tissues. And and so what happens is that if enough histamine is produced, then somebody eating enough of a serving of that 
meal, then actually ingests, you know, a couple hundred milligrams of histamine and gets a histamine reaction, toxicity reaction, which is, you know, associated with things like changes in blood pressure, rapid heart rate, a general flushing or erythema. Uh, the reactions are usually transient. You can treat them with antihistamines. One of the keys is that if it happens while a bunch of people are eating seafood and everybody gets it, it's not an allergy. Food allergies are usually more specific. So if you're eating fish and one person has a reaction of some sort, but the rest don't, eating a similar amount of food, then generally that's more typical of a true allergy. That assumes they're all eating the same fish. That assumes that they're all eating the same thing. Now, in that situation, do you have to do skin prick tests or in vitro testing for IgE-mediated allergic diseases before you make this diagnosis? In other words, a single person gets it. Is this a diagnosis of exclusion? The way I think it should be handled is often on the basis of history because it's a sporadic one-time event in a certain setting that you may say, I think this looks like scombroid fish poisoning. But when you make that assessment, if there's any question, the person could either have a RAST done, you know, you know, IgE measured in serum to the food that was being eaten, say some fish or whatever, or could undergo skin testing. If the person had a negative skin test, it would tend, or negative IgE level, it would tend to substantiate the diagnosis of scombroid fish poisoning. There are other poisonous materials within some types of foods, like scallops and things, during certain times of the year. And again, it's the same idea. If you get a reaction that looks allergic or is confusing, then if it's not clearly one that you can diagnose by epidemiology and, and the appearance of the patient that complaints and response to therapy, then you can go through and you can look for IgE to that material. Uh, you know, you always do have to remember that there are people walking around with positive skin tests to foods who in reality can eat that food without a problem. So skin tests or measurement of antigen-specific IgE and serum can only be used in the context of an evaluation where you're substantiating or evaluating a clinical diagnosis. Very important point because in my early in my pediatric training, there were children that were put on these unbelievably restrictive diets to the point that some of them were developing malnutrition, all based on positive skin tests. Is there a particular season when I shouldn't eat my shrimp and mussels? Well, not really, but for example, scallops in particular on the East Coast in the fall and things tend to be more likely to be contaminated. But the monitoring of these processes says that it rarely there is a problem. Are there any foods that are direct histamine releasers that, you know, it's not a toxic, but it's a purely biochemical mechanism? There are if you want to play around in the test tube. But the reality of it is that if you eat materials that may even be in the test tube, direct histamine releasers, they generally don't clinically do that when you eat the food because of the protection of the gastrointestinal tract and antibodies and digestion and everything else that comes into play. So the person who breaks out in hives after strawberry, it's it's not a uh, direct histamine release, it's a IgE-mediated reaction? If it's systemic, you'd worry about a true allergy, which is rare to strawberries. If it's just on the lips, it could be an irritant reaction, which are sometimes thought of as direct histamine releasers. Uh, there are also, by the way, things like INH that inhibit histamine degradation. So you can actually kind of change the threshold of some of this depending upon what drugs people are on. So if you're going to evaluate some of these reactions, it, all, it is always helpful to look at the pharmacologic properties of whatever pharmaceutical agents that a person is on. If you're just joining us, I'd like to welcome you to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. 
I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. Dean Metcalf, Chief of the Laboratory of Allergic and Infectious Diseases at the NIH. Today we are discussing masqueraders of food allergy. Moving along to other potential hidden things within the foods, salad bars have been a big problem. What's the issue there? Well, the issue, I hope, is largely resolved. But if you go back a number of years, it was very common to spray sulfites on fresh fruits and vegetables and salad bars. And a number of people who had asthma had severe reactions or even deaths associated with eating salads from these bars. It was found that the sulfites really put off sulfur dioxide would throw some asthmatics into acute you know, bronchospasm. That really now no longer is a major problem because the use of sulfites as, as spray-on materials on fresh fruits and vegetables salad bars has largely been replaced by other approaches to preserve the material. But there still are situations where you know, uh, somebody who with very twitchy lungs might have a problem maybe uh, buying a bag of fresh fruits and vegetables and popping it open and there's some sulfur dioxide that comes out and things like that. But it's much less of a problem than it was at one time. Concerns about sulfiding agents in pharmaceutical agents has largely been looked at and felt not to be a major problem. Very fashionable to consume wine. Are there any problems with sulfites in wine? Well, you know, that's a good question. I mean, there, first of all, there are a lot of stuff in wine that rarely people can have reactions to. And so it's always a terribly difficult thing to work up if somebody is having some kind of systemic reaction to wine. I mean, the obvious thing you want to tell them is just don't drink wine because it's so complex. But yeah, sulfites are not only made by wine, but used in dealing with the material that's used in winemaking. So yes, I mean, there are some situations in which that sulfite level might get high enough that somebody quite sulfite sensitive could react. It doesn't happen very often. Food dyes are talked about all the time. I mean, everybody's they're allergic to the red, to the yellow. Which are the ones we have to worry about, and how common a problem is it? Well, true allergies to food dyes are very rare. The thing to look for is if you think somebody does have a reaction to a food dye to see if it's a natural food dye or see if it's made from an insect or something else where allergies are a little bit more common. The big concern for a number of years has been not really allergic reactions in per se, but more food dyes causing hyperactivity in children and things like that. That's been looked at extensively. It's not clear if there's really a good association, but if it's suspected or the parents are concerned, it's not altogether that difficult to stay away from food coloring if you stay away from compound foods and candies and things like that. So you're saying there may be some validity to hyperactivity in food dye? That people have looked at this very carefully, and the data really has never been convincing. There are anecdotal reports where a few children seem to have made dramatic improvements. But if you look at the situation, if somebody's really concerned that this is contributing to a problem, then the easy answer is to structure the diet so that these materials are avoided. I will say I don't think it's a major problem. I think it's rarely a problem. Usually the statement is that there may be an occasional child that will benefit from staying away from food colorings and food additives. We're starting to see genetically modified foods cropping up, no pun intended, in the supermarkets. Are there any issues there pertaining to allergic-like reactions? There's always been a concern about this. In fact, the use of genetic engineering really to modify foods is very common now around the world. Much of the corn we consume and soybeans and things like that has been modified for insect resistance and things of that sort. And so there's always been a concern on the part of the FDA 
that has in place procedures to make sure that you don't create an allergenic food. For example, you wouldn't want to move some protein from peanut that was allergenic into corn for some reason and then create a huge wave of people allergic to the corn you'd modified them. You, know, you wouldn't want to do that. So there are procedures in place to avoid that. But the rest of it, you know, there's really not been any series of reactions that are substantiated to genetically modified foods to this point. So it sounds like I need to plant my garden, not use any fertilizer, check the soil, and hope for the best. Right, exactly. I'd like to thank Dr. Dean Metcalf, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing masqueraders of food allergy. This is Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thanks for listening. I wish you good day and good health.